Welcome to Catholic Living, a podcast that seeks to be a user's guide to the Catholic faith, where we boldly ask, what if this stuff is all true? How then should we live? This is brought to you by Ex Corte at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. I'm Tom Hoops. I'm writer-in-residence here at the college. You can read what I write at alatea.org or excorte.org. And I want to talk today about the mistakes movies make. And what I mean here are what people would call philosophical mistakes, mistakes about the human person. In fact, I'll talk about mistakes about the human person, and then in a future podcast, I want to talk about mistakes about God and love. But let me start with a story, a personal story, a true story. I'm listing all the things that my producer, Michael Coy, says the story has to be. Did you say recent story? It's not a recent story. I don't think it has to be a recent story. No. Okay. So early in my career, I was a journalist for the National Catholic Register, and I was chosen to accompany a great luminary who was coming to the United States of America. He was an Albanian priest named Father Simon Yubani, who had been in solitary confinement in Albania. Uh, So he was in solitary confinement in a prison in one of the worst systems in Europe, one of the most backward countries in Europe, one of the most virulently anti-God places in Europe. He had been tortured, he'd been beaten up for believing in Christ, and he was coming to the United States on a sort of a fundraising tour to try to get the Albanian diaspora to support the Albanian church in Albania. And I was chosen to accompany him on the airplane from San Francisco to Los Angeles which I did, and there's lots and lots of great stories that come from that trip, Uh, but I'm going to focus on one. Uh, This this is a man who had learned English in prison from a kindly prison guard who smuggled in Fenimore Cooper books. Um, But So he had a rudimentary understanding of English. He didn't have much understanding of Hollywood or Hollywood movies at all. And we flew into Studio City uh, in... Uh, you know, near Hollywood. And the first place we took him, uh, thanks to the priest who was there in the local parish, was to the Universal Studios lot. And we started off in a restaurant that was frequented by the stars. And as we sat uh, getting ready to eat, the priest spoke about all the movie stars who'd sat there and John Wayne, that was his regular table over there. And then they started talking about the food and how they cook this and how they cook that. And Father Simon Yubani was getting more and more frustrated and started banging on the table and shouted, um, shut up, shut up, stop talking about the things we share with the animals. Let us speak of higher things, not food, but philosophy and faith. <clears throat> so he was very frustrated by this experience. He didn't understand these people who were not you know, that like wealthy or uh, snooty, But to him, this whole fascination with food and with celebrity didn't make any sense at all. What made even less sense to him was the Universal Studios tour that we took him on. So this is a man who'd never seen any movies that I know of, or or maybe some old movies. Uh, They didn't have electricity in a lot of places in Albania at the time. They certainly didn't have movie theaters. And we took him on this ride that goes through Universal Studios 
and where you experience some of the special effects that they use in Hollywood. So as you're traveling over a bridge, a shark leaps out of the water and uh, at you. And when that happened, Father Simon screamed in terror. He had no idea what was going on. And then uh, you go into a, um, uh, into a kind of a tunnel on your little tram, and the whole tunnel starts to shake, and you experience an earthquake, and uh, a semi is driving by you up above, you notice, and it careens off the road and falls toward you, and it seems like it's going to destroy everyone in the tram. And Father Simon Yubani turned white with fear, and he was praying uh, fervently for his survival for his soul, probably. Uh, so I felt very uncomfortable on this uh, Universal Studios tour next to this Albanian figure. Um, one thing he had said early on is he, he asked me, he challenged me. He said, Tom, are you made from the monkey? And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, do you come from the monkey? And I understood he meant evolution. And so I said, well, there's a sense in which theistic evolution, which acknowledges the creator, he stopped me. He said, no, 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 no. You are not made from the monkey. You are made from Adam and Eve. Darwin, Darwin is the only one made from the monkey. So uh, as we're traveling through this um, Universal Studios tour, tragedy after tragedy is befalling us, and he's praying and then Eventually, he starts to understand what's going on, and this is all trickery, and this is all um, somebody's special effects. And one of the last things we see is a King Kong face who blows on the passengers as they pass him by, and his breath smells something like bananas, supposedly. I, didn't, I couldn't quite tell. But by then, Father Simon was delighted by the whole thing. He jumped up and down on the tram and pointed and shouted, Darwin, Darwin, this is Darwin, Darwin. Um, and then at the end of the whole experience, first of all, he called me his Virgil. Virgil is the uh, poet who, um, who guided Dante through the inferno, through the pits of hell. So I was his Virgil guiding him through the hell that is Universal Studios Tour. But then he said, America is a paradox. And I won't attempt to do his accent because I'm really, really bad at accents, A and B, because isn't that kind of offensive? But at any rate, I'm not going to try. He's, uh, he said, uh, the paradox of America, you have so much, and this is what you do with it, pointing to the Universal Studios tour. So I always remember that story when I think about movies and the mistakes they make, because what movies do really, really well is they convince us that we're living in a reality that we're not living in. And they do this increasingly well, uh, you know, far beyond the, um, the special effects that we saw when we toured the Universal Studios tour in 1990, early 1990s. And they have a way of tricking us into thinking that what's not real is real, at least for the time being. There's a series of addresses, well, actually, it's a series of two talks, I believe, that Pope Pius XII did to the makers of movies in the 50s. And he said that movie makers have a special responsibility because for people sitting in that theater, you are easily sucked into this other realm where 
someone else is essentially controlling your dreams and essentially telling you who you are and where you are in a way that was totally new at the time uh, and that was totally challenging at the time and is still challenging and is still ever new with new forms of special effects. So what happens when we watch a movie and it tells us that things are real that aren't real? Well, I would argue that it's very important for us to know what mistakes movies make, what philosophical mistakes about the human person they make to start with. Um, I'm saying philosophical, but I'm not going to use much philosophy, so I apologize to philosophers for saying philosophical. It's easy to look at movies of the past and see the mistakes they made. They made all kinds of mistakes about women, about race, about authority, and on and on. It's the same with the movies of today. The difference is we don't see the mistakes they're making as clearly because they're mistakes that we're making in many cases. So I'm going to share some mistakes that movies make, but I'm not saying that these movies should all be banned. I'm not saying that we should avoid watching any and all of these movies. That's not my point at all. What I am saying is that we should be aware of the mistakes they make and tell ourselves, okay, well, that's wrong. Maybe in some cases, and I think certainly in some cases, they make mistakes that should cause us to say, well, I'm not going to watch that movie. That Some of them make mistakes that should make us say, well, I'm not going to let my kids watch that movie. So the first mistake I want to talk about is the images don't matter mistake. Images don't matter. You, your aunt, and your aunt's friends would never think of going together as a group to look through a neighbor's window and watch a husband and wife or boyfriend and girlfriend in bed. In fact, if you did that, you would feel very creepy. And if you found out that coworkers in your office had done that, you would feel like they were very creepy. Uh, in fact, though, Hollywood producers want us to believe that getting together in the same type of group of people to sit in a theater and watch giant colored images intercut with close-ups and punctuated by music uh, of exactly the same thing is a perfectly normal way to spend a Saturday afternoon, which is to say that Hollywood producers are creepy and they want us to be creepy too. But apart from the question of whether this is intentional or not, the real difference between watching this through a bedroom window and watching it on a big screen is that in the first case, you have to confess voyeurism when you go to confession right away. In the second case, you have to confess pornography when you go to confession right away. Uh, because the catechism definition of pornography is the depiction of a sexual act, which also happens to be a, an almost obligatory scene in lots of movies, especially in the 80s and 90s, uh, less so today, but still often you see these in movies today. These also have a lasting effect on your brain. The, there's a chemical stimulation that happens in your brain when you see nudity that burns the image into your brain, essentially. Uh, it's meant for biological reasons so that husbands and wives will be bonded with one another. Uh, it's meant to veil the sacredness of sexuality and of nudity. Um, but when you violate it and just let it happen in random movies, it burns images into your brain. So if you ask people from the 1980s 
if they watched the movie Witness, which was a Harrison Ford movie about a murder in an Amish community, uh, they'll say, sure, yeah, yeah, it's a Harrison Ford movie about a murder in an Amish community. If you say, well, what do you remember from that movie? Most of them will remember that the protagonist at one point looks through a keyhole and watches a woman bathe. And they won't remember probably any other scenes in that movie because that kind of thing has a way of burning itself into your brain. Um, if they watched the 1990s movie, Schindler's List, they would probably remember the nudity from that movie, which is perhaps justifiable. I think probably justifiable in that it shows the evil and the degradation that was the Holocaust. Uh, but if they watch the movie Titanic from around the same period of time, they will remember the scene of Kate Winslet posing in a living room while the protagonist, Leonardo DiCaprio, paints her, draws her, whatever he was doing. Uh, because that's the kind of image that burns itself into your brain for biological reasons. So my rule of thumb for movies that I show children are that people imitate what they see. And this is absolutely true of children. If you show them Star Wars, they will play Star Wars after watching Star Wars. And a 2008 study kind of locked down that if you show teens movies with lots of nudity in them, they are much more likely to become pregnant outside of wedlock than teens who don't watch those movies. Okay, so this is obviously true with children. We, they imitate what they see. But you know what? Adults imitate what they see also. We also are, uh, our morality is changed by what we watch. So you kind of have to be careful about what you watch also. So that's the first mistake. The images don't matter mistake, where we think that, well, we can watch whatever we want. Who cares? It's not going to do anything to us. Well, another mistake is like it. Now I'm going to call it the glamour of evil mistake. I might want to call it the false beauty mistake. Maybe it's two mistakes that I'm conflating into one. But these are movies that try to trick us into seeing skin-deep beauty instead of real beauty. Um, and actually, one of them leads to the other. Let me explain what I'm trying to say here. The false beauty mistake tells us that all good people in movies must be attractive. You see this in small ways and in big ways in almost every movie. Some movies play against this by having surprise. The good-looking person actually turns out to be evil. Uh, but the only reason those movies work are because we've been brainwashed by this trope that says that all good people are good looking and all bad people are ugly. You see this in real life movies all the time where, for instance, in the movie Concussion, Will Smith plays the anti-concussion doctor. And he looks nothing like the actual doctor in Africa uh, or from Africa who who discovered the concussion issues that the movie revolves around. But what happens is that these movies, by making physical characteristics a clear indication of good or evil, lead to a number of problems. The Lord of the Rings movies are a particular version of this trope. Uh, you have the orcs, who are clearly evil because they're ugly, facing off against the good-looking elf and the good-looking king. And even the hobbits, they you know choose good-looking actors to play the hobbits. This trope leaves the door wide open to movies that make evil look attractive. For one thing, it leaves our children and ourselves open to being conned, 
So suddenly, if you've taught your brain over and over again that what's attractive is good and what's evil is always ugly, then when somebody comes to you who's attractive with a promising prospect, you're much more able to fall for it if you've imbibed this trope. Then you find movie makers using the same glamour of evil to make us fall for some world or another. I'm thinking of movies like Taxi Driver, where the messed up world of the protagonist, Travis Bickle, is made eerily beautiful with, um, you know, blue hues and slightly foggy lighting, uh, all the way up to Joker, which kind of imitates its look, where uh, the beauty of the world is, you know, with these pastels and these certain colors, uh, is also very evocative. Actually, the Second Vatican Council mentions this mistake. It's in its document on media, Intermerifica, where the council, first of all, says you shouldn't fear watching evil in movies. It says the narration, depiction, or portrayal of moral evil, even through the media of social communication, can serve to bring about a deeper knowledge and study of humanity and the, with the aid of appropriately heightened dramatic effects and reveal and glorify the grand dimension of truth and goodness. So you can show evil, but then it warns, such presentations ought always to be subject to moral restraint, lest they lead to the harm rather than the benefit of souls, particularly where there is a question of treating matters that deserve reverent handling, or which, given the baneful effect of original sin in men, could quite readily arouse base desires in them. It says, you should beware of movies that use artistic or technical merit to kind of make evil look good. This is the Second Vatican Council saying that we should evangelize our imaginations. As St. Paul put it, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is gracious, if there is any excellence and if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Uh, I started to appreciate this moral prescription when CSI and Law and Order were popular. These shows were very well written, amazing pacing with twists at just the right moment to kind of keep you hooked uh, and to kind of give you these eureka experiences. But the answer to the mystery always seemed to be that somebody with an intensely perverse attraction to evil was doing wrong in some intensely perverse way. And after a while, it changes the way you look at yourself and at humanity as you see more and more this wickedness that's uh, perpetrated by these people and often done in this alluring way. So I stopped watching those and started watching David Suchet's Hercule Poirot instead, and Monk, for instance, for my mysteries. And these were actually hard to watch at first because you've been trained by these brutal movies to have these shocking experiences that these movies didn't deliver. So you may have to evangelize your imagination by feeding it with appropriate images of good and evil. So a related mistake is the one I want to call the violence is awesome or the revenge is sweet mistake. The, these have an issue that my mom used to point out all the time. You can see it in action movies. Uh, this refers to movies that make the bad guys so bad that the good guys can kill them and it feels great when they die. And the good guys can even kill them in brutal ways, and that feels even better. 
I think a great example of this is The Patriot with Mel Gibson, where the British antagonist is not just a British guy who's trying to keep the colonies from revolting. He's a guy who locks a bunch of people in a church and tortures the church. He's a very cruel, torturous man. And as soon as I saw the character doing those things, and you know, also knowing that Mel Gibson was the star, I knew that this is setting me up so that you can have whatever kind of revenge you wanna have over th this person in the end. And sure enough, at the end, I think um, Mel vivisects him while staring in his face, uh, which is not a pleasant image, but it sure feels good in that movie, the way they've set it up. You can actually see each uh, decade's character by the safe villains it produces. But the problem with these is that we shouldn't celebrate the deaths of anybody, especially the violent deaths of anybody. Everyone's death diminishes me. And the problem is that movies spend so much time giving us killable victims, who, by the way, are usually trying to destroy the whole world, right? So, of course, you can take them out. That other movies don't seem to try that hard at all, and they, they already come to us in a place where we're willing to accept that villains can be dispatched without mercy. Again, people imitate what they see, right? I think that depending on your neighborhood uh, and other factors in your life, you're more likely to directly imitate either sexuality on the one hand or violence on the other. But there are certainly people who imitate violence. But at least in your attitudes, you start to take on the, uh, you start to imitate what you've seen in these movies. You start to think that violence against certain people doesn't matter, or you start to think that violence isn't a devastating thing in somebody's life. You start to think that sometimes war isn't that big of a deal because it solves problems. Whereas a fact, war is always a big deal and violence never solves problems. I like to compare the end of White House Down to the end of Captain Phillips, which is a Tom Hanks movie about Somali pirates. I love the final scene in Captain Phillips where the protagonist, after surviving horrific trials, is in shock and it com comes completely unglued and is unable to cope as he shakes and can barely answer questions from a nurse. Very well-executed scene on top of just being very powerful emotionally. That's what happens in real life when you suffer violence. You are traumatized, sometimes for life. In White House Down, <laughs> The president, played by Jamie Foxx, and the Secret Service wannabe, played by Chady Tatum, portrayed by Channing Tatum, and his daughter have gone through even worse violence in some respects than Captain Phillips went through. Uh, and they're just happy, and they take a joyride on a helicopter at the end. Um, whereas in real life, these people would be traumatized, and they'd have to spend days just kind of trying to get back to baseline and maybe months and years trying to figure out how to cope with what they'd been through. So that's the violence is awesome mistake or the revenge is sweet mistake. So another mistake is hubris wins the day. I call it hubris wins the day. Uh, hubris in ancient tales was somebody relying on themselves to overcome a difficulty. And that is what turned a story, according to Aristotle, into tragedy. If you believed in yourself too much, you would fail. The way to overcome difficulties was to turn to your comrades, your country, your family, your God, 
something outside yourself. Often it's something that you had denigrated earlier and suddenly you realize this thing is very valuable and that helps you triumph. Well, nowadays the ultimate hero is always a skilled loner, right? Like James Bond, uh, Jason Bourne, Neo in the Matrix movies. Um, often this happens in uh, superhero movies, but often nowadays actually the superheroes come as a group and they have to work together. So that's always better. I remember going to see the Hannah Montana 3D concert movie with my 11-year-old daughter, who now has a child of her own uh, years later. Um, but the lyrics of the song, the Hannah Montana song, went like this. Life is hard or it's a party. The choice is up to you. Life's what you make it, so let's make it rock. Uh, and this is also the movie that introduced Miley Cyrus as a solo singer. And she spent her career very much living up to Hannah Montana's motto. When we watch it in Hannah Montana's movies, we think, oh, that's charming. When we watch it in Miley Cyrus's career, those of us who are parents find it a lot less charming. In other words, what happens in this mistake is that by looking inward, one finds the resources necessary to create oneself and determine the fate one wants. Hubris wins the day. Hubris doesn't make you tragic. In fact, failure in hubris is what ends in tragedy. So how did the old version of hubris work and how does the new version work? Well, if you look at Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island or Kidnapped, you see the old version. You see Jimmy Hawkins uh, and David Balfour stuck into situations where when they believed in themselves, they got themselves in big trouble but only by turning outside themselves to friends uh, and to uh, comrades are they able to crawl out of the hole that they've built for themselves. Then you look at modern kid stories from Spy Kids to Hercules to Moana. I always call it Moana to irritate my children. I know it's Moana. To Moana and the Kung Fu Panda. The opposite is the case. What the kids need to triumph in these movies is swaggering confidence. So this movie mistake comes from and feeds radical individualism. In these stories, the self is the important thing. Others are just props, obstacles, or boosters in a hero's stage, right? But this error leaves an audience ill-equipped for the real world, where true success only comes through working with others. It's a lie to believe that you can succeed looking only to yourself. In fact, if you try to succeed looking only to yourself, you end up psychologically devastated. Human beings are social animals, according to Aristotle. They're embedded in a community. We only exist in relationships with others. We need the help of friends, family, and God to be fully ourselves. If you try to do something on your own, you're lost. Which brings us to another mistake, the dreams always come true mistake. It's great for movies to have happy endings that encourage hope by showing us that life is hard but worth it because it usually ends well. I think that's true. I, I, I think that movies are saying something true when they show us that uh, the, the happy ending. Um, something true that transcends what we literally experience, but probably is a good thing to give us optimism rather than pessimism about where we're headed. But the improbably happy ending that tells audiences whatever you dream will be, will be, 
I think is actually very damaging. This is another ubiquitous mistake. Uh, examples are super easy to find. Cinderella dreams that somebody will rescue her from her dire straits, and indeed somebody does. Um, many of the Disney princess movies operate the same way. Even I just watched a more recent movie, A Boy Called Christmas, uh, which is very much about the dream comes true uh, trope. You also see it in romantic comedies, uh, from Sleepless in Seattle back in the day to The Proposal, which is a little bit more recent. And nearly every other romantic comedy makes romantic love the dream that will always come true. Hallmark movies almost always fall into the trap of saying that good guys will have a rough time of it, but it'll all work out in the end. But I think this leads directly to the epidemic of sadness and depression we have in the world right now. You have an epidemic of divorces, of uh, social isolation, uh, where people drop out of human relationships. Um, my wife, April, points out that these movies lead to that because of a number of things. One, either you never meet the magical someone who you're fated to meet, and then your life feels like a failure. Like, wait a second, I thought I was supposed to meet the magical someone, and that someone never came. Or second, you meet a not-so-great someone who you convince yourself is the magical someone, and you play out the romance you've seen in movies, and then you're shocked to find that the person is not as wonderful as the people in the movies would lead you to believe the person's supposed to be. Or a third problem is that you have a normal relationship with a normal human being who is normally full of virtues and full of flaws, but is normally not extraordinary. And then you convince yourself, well, this isn't the wonderful person that I was promised in all these movies that I would get. This is just an average person who has flaws. And then you feel like your love relationship is somehow second rate. I love the early episodes of American Idol where these people who clearly can't sing and clearly have been told all their lives that they can be whatever they want and decided, well, I'm going to be a rock star, are told for the first time by Simon Cowell, they're spoken to honestly for the first time by an adult who says, no, you're not a good singer. You, This is not going to work for you. Do something different. Uh, and it's devastating to them. I always like to show my kids, though, to, to show them that, see, unlike what the movies tell us, dreams do not always come true. It's also devastating in the professional world where you see someone who's been told that they're special and they start as a new employee and you have to somehow get them to realize that they're not special, that they have to actually follow instructions, that they have to do, that they have to fail at things that they try early on and that it's okay if they fail. It doesn't mean that they're a terrible person. It just means that they're normal and average and they're not a Mary Sue who's going to effortlessly be awesome at everything. And worst of all, I think, and this is actually borne out in suicide statistics, the worst of all is middle-aged men, they have the highest uh, uh, suicide rate in the country right now, who suddenly come to a point in their life where they think, I am not at all the person I expected to be. I dreamed big dreams, I had big plans, and now look at me, I'm a middle manager, I'm not the best liked person in my community. I'm not the best loved person in my office. I'm not, uh, I don't have all of these wonderful things that the movies promised me. 
uh, a good guy would have, and you know, I've been trying to be a good guy. And you suddenly, they suddenly find that their life is without meaning, without purpose, um, because it's normal. Whereas having a normal life still means that you have are great and enormous on the inside because you're loved by God, but they don't know that. But I think it all stems back to this dreams always come true mistakes that have been drilled into us by movie after movie from our childhood on. And I think a good antidote to these movies are um, work hard movies. Usually sports movies will be work hard movies, you know, from Rocky to Cinderella Man, uh, you know, Miracle, the movie about hockey, Rudy. Usually what happens in real life is you work really, really hard to get your dream and you don't get your dream. You get something that's a little bit like your dream, but it's pretty far off from your dream. Rudy gets to suit up and play for Notre Dame, but I guess in real life, it wasn't even a very pivotal play and he didn't really do that great. Uh, in the movie, I, I think it's a more pivotal play and he does a great job. But um, but this is what life is all about. It's working really, 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 really hard for something that doesn't turn out to meet up to your expectations. And that's okay. So like I say, I'm not saying that these movies have to be banned. I'm not saying that you have to avoid watching any and all of these movies. What I am trying to say is to be very aware of what these mistakes are, especially with your children, so that you can tell them that life isn't really this way, you realize. But also with yourself, and so you can tell yourself that life really isn't this way all the time also. We're talking about mistakes movies make, and I wanted to invite my uh, producer, Michael Coy, a filmophile. Is that the way to say that? Uh, I guess a cinephile is what people usually a say. cinephile. Uh, to ask any questions or make any comments he'd want to make on a subject so near and dear to his heart. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Tom. Usually I'm just behind the scenes here, but um, I really liked the subject, first of all, of realizing that movies do have a moral um, obligation because I did used to have this opinion that anything goes as far as filmmaking goes. I feel like a lot of people have that idea, like art is the God in a way, but there were some things that I just wanted to follow up about because first of all, it seems like you're kind of leaning more towards realism um, above all in storytelling and fantasy has a whole lot to do with storytelling, like the um, sort of interpreting things in a in a way that is not exactly like life, but like it's not realistic, but it's true. Like I feel like The Lord of the Rings is a good example of that. It's nothing, it's a fantasy movie, but it's trying to get at human like truth in a way. Um, so is realism the full, is that the end all be all? Yeah, well, first of all, I hope I'm not making the argument that message movies are the way to go. I, you say art is the god. I do believe art is the ultimate goal of any movie, that it should be beautiful and true in and of itself, not necessarily beautiful and true to a particular ideological end. And I think that maybe answers what you're getting at. I don't know if realism is the way to go, I think, sometimes. But I think credibility is always the way to go. So there's a uh, you know anything from "It's a Wonderful Life," which is 
not realistic in a number of ways. Uh, you know, it has to set up a very specific set of circumstances that are very unlikely to be as uh, powerful in everybody's life as they are in George Bailey's. You know, uh, I think my life matters, but I know it didn't save anybody from a lake as a child, and that person didn't grow up to save a plane full of people as an adult. The, you know, movies have to put in a lot of these elements that uh, make the story more powerful but and have to remain credible, though not very realistic. Uh, so I think any movie has to be credible rather than realistic. So I guess like what comes up then in my mind is um, a movie like Taxi Driver that you talk about that, um, you know, the uh, director, Martin Scorsese, who like I revere and a lot of people in the movie world revere as a like a great artist. Um, he wants to show violence in a uh, in what he says is a very um, gritty and realistic way. And like a lot of a lot of directors have that point of view that you can show uh, the frankness of violence, or even the going further with what you were talking about, the frankness of sexuality, and that's a that's a good thing, or um, it can do good in a way. Uh, do you have do you put any like credence to that? Yeah, well, Martin Scorsese is an interesting example because in many ways he deliberately tries to subvert many of the tropes that I'm talking about. So the glamorous, you know, character, the Sharon Stone character in Casino does not turn out to be the good character. Uh, and the, um, uh, the, the same is true in Goodfellas and in movie after movie, he seems to want to point to the fact that these things aren't always true. On the other hand, I think that he ends up doing a lot of exploitative things, especially, and I haven't watched The Wolf of Wall Street, but he gets to a point in his career where suddenly he's part of the problem, where he's showing things not to show you they're evil, but to kind of revel in them the way that the bad characters might revel in them. Um, and I think that shows that you can't really play around with some of these things. The, the church teaches that pornography is always wrong, and that seems like a fuddy-duddy statement. Well, aren't there artistic examples where it might be okay? Uh, I think Scorsese's later career proves that, well, now maybe the church is on to something. Yeah, actually, I, I do agree with you about The Wolf of Wall Street. It does go too far down that road. One other thing that occurred to me was in your last point about happy endings um, and that happy endings don't come true. I guess I feel like a lot of stories are sort of based, they almost mirror the story of Christ in a way, of salvation. And that's the, I mean, that that's a happy story that, you know, will come true. Well, don't get me wrong. I didn't say happy endings don't come true. In fact, I tried to say the opposite. I love what Brian Jakes once said. He's the author of the Red Wall series. Mm. And he said, yes, in my stories, the good guys always win. And he says, I would argue that in life, the good guys always win. Otherwise, we'd all be dressed in Nazi outfits. Uh, 
And in case after case, you see that evil undoes itself. Now, there's lots of people who died before Nazism undid itself. And there's lots of evils today that will one day fall that people won't get to see them fall. So in each individual case, the happy ending doesn't necessarily come. But happy endings are ultimately guaranteed because God is in charge of the world and God is good. Uh, and I do think that the ultimate story is the Christ story that a lot of stories pull their power from. Heck, I, Jesus even makes the case that um, the fact that grains of wheat fall to the ground and die and become uh, sheaves of wheat it, it is a reflection of his story. So don't get me wrong. I'm saying that dreams don't always come true. So the, the, the person who dreamt as a child of being great in one way or another, either a financial tycoon or, you know, whatever it is, and finds himself a middle, middle manager at a bank late in life, uh, he doesn't need to look at his life and say, my life is a failure because this dream that I had didn't come true. Well, an even greater dream did come true, and that's that he is... He has the sacraments available to him. He literally, you know, walks with angels at mass. He uh, it literally can change people's fate for an eternity by reaching out to them. He has God's own love available to him in charitable acts. Yeah, so something much greater than his dream is true. Uh, and his life has had a happy ending, just not the particular dream that he started out with. Hmm. I disagree completely with every point. Oh. <laughs> this has been Catholic living. <laughs> All right. Awesome. I'm hijacking the studio. No, thanks for having me on, Tom. Uh, I'm sure uh, if we do another Mistakes Movies Make podcast down the road, I'll ha definitely have some questions. No, I think it's worth exploring how works of art can be authentic. So ultimately, I think what these mistakes are about are the truth of the human person. That's what the artist has to be faithful to. Well, thanks for being our Virgil through the universal tour of mistakes that movies make. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Hoops, and this is the Catholic Living Podcast, produced by Excorde at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Our mission is to produce media that will transform culture in America through Benedictine's mission of community, faith, and scholarship. Visit us at excorde.org.